when Keith Stonehouse received a flurry of orders from Grubhub, it didn't take him long to realize what had happened. Stonehouse had allowed his six-year-old son to play on his phone before bed. His son Mason rewarded his kindness by ordering a whole bunch of food. The dad said to his son, why did you do this? He said that to his son, who by now was hiding under his comforter. (laughs) The son Mason replied, I don't really know. I was hungry. (laughs) Mason proceeded to interrupt his father's lecture mid-sentence when he said these words, Dad, stop. When are the pepperoni pizzas coming? (laughs) Now, thankfully, the $439 pizza order was canceled by the bank for appearing fraudulent. However, more than $1,000 worth of food was successfully ordered and delivered, creating a very full refrigerator and emergency offers to friends and neighbors to share this unforeseen bounty. (laughs) This dad remarked, I had to keep stepping out of his room and calming myself down. You want to yell at your son, but he's only six. (laughs) The next day, Stonehouse and his wife sat down with their son, Mason, and they explained the gravity of his actions. So to teach him a lesson, Mason had to use $150 from his piggy bank to pay for all, help pay for all the hot dogs, cheese fries, hot wings, and burgers, which showed up at their front door. His father reflected, Quote, we showed him one by one, that's the actual image from the phone, one by one what he did. He was a little devastated, but he understood the consequences. Well, as we continue in our Back to the Beginning series from Genesis, we're going to see how God the Father enforced some severe consequences on his children because they ate the wrong grub. Come on, that was funny. I I worked on that. So let's take a little breath now, and let me ask some questions. My guess is some, many of these questions will find traction in your own soul. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard? I mean, why do relationships have to be so difficult? I mean, the tension, the repair work, the, 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 the misunderstandings, the disagreements. Or why do you feel so unfulfilled at your job? If you're married, why is your marriage messy at times? And other times, why is it just a mess? If you have children, why is parenting so challenging? Maybe look in right now. What, where does that rage come from? Why, why do you get so angry? That person who cuts you off or the person who wrongs you, what's up with all that? Or why do you feel so restless and kind of anxious and unsettled? 
Why do you feel so rebellious sometimes where you don't want God telling you what to do? You just want to do what you want to do. Where does all that come from? I mean, why is it so hard to read your Bible and easy to do so many other things? Why are you so self-centered? Why am I? Why do you feel discouraged? Why do you just feel down and low and flat? At a global area, why are there so many natural disasters? I mean, it's in your news feed or if you're reading the paper or catching it on TV. There's stuff happening all the time. What's up with that? And why is there so much conflict in the world? Why are nations going at it? Why is there so much conflict and animosity? And why does life itself just feel so unsettled? Why, why do you feel so lonely, so alone? And why are so many people you love dying? Friends, let's just say it. Life is not what it should be. And when we see all that is wrong, be reminded of how sin has affected and infected everyone and everything. Write this down. The curse of Adam's sin brings suffering to everyone. So we could say it like this. The source of our problems today can ultimately be traced back to the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. And those consequences were designed to help the first couple see the horror, the hideousness of their unholy behavior. And for us today, it is no small thing to sin against a holy God. Our passage today is found in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able, and let's give our attention to God's word. To set the context, last weekend, Pastor Kyle took us to verses 14 and 15 when God pronounced a curse upon the serpent. We turn now to what God said to the woman and then what he said to Adam. Let's read together, beginning in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You can be seated. God, we've read the Word, Your Word, Your inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word. But Lord, we don't want to just read it. We don't want to just glance at it. We want to be doers of Your Word. But in order for that to happen, we must first understand it. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher. As we walk through this passage, there'll be parts we find encouraging, uh, parts that don't necessarily uh, impact each of us individually. And then there'll be other things we'll hear today that, well, frankly, we don't want to hear. So Lord, we pray that we would not fight you, we would not battle, but we'd allow your word Uh, to go deep down into our hearts, our souls, that it would affect then how we live, how we think, how we talk, how we give, and how we go with the glorious gospel of Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations. We give you this time now. Would you be honored and glorified in it and through it by our obedience? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as the serpent was given two consequences, what we're going to see here is Adam and Eve were each given two penalties which strike at the heart of who they are and what they're called to do. Observe, God did not curse them directly as he did the serpent, but he did impose some sentences on them which have affected every human being since then. And so we'll see consequences related to love in verse 16 and consequences related to labor and life in verses 17 through 19. Incidentally, this often hits me when I'm not here for a weekend. What a joy to preach God's word to a church that is so eager to hear it, no matter how difficult the topic might be. So many of you come prepared with your Bibles open. We send out the sermon manuscript along with discussion questions and a sheet for taking notes. Every Friday afternoon, several hundred people get that. Marie Guyton, seated here in the front row. Can you just raise your hand, Marie? I know you don't want attention, but I'm giving her attention because she puts all that material together, sends that email out. We also make printed copies of sermon notes. So if it would help you to stay awake, wait, pay attention during the sermon, you could pick up one of those sheets we prepare them every week, and there's fill-in spots and things that you could then take with you. Let's just give Marie a hand for her ministry. On a regular occasion, I receive emails from people at Edgewood who share with me what God has been teaching them and how God has been using his word. I received an email this week from Scott James. He wrote this, I've been reading Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19, to stay up on the text, that's our text today, on which you will be preaching. You can see that God has chastisement for even Adam, which always proceeds from love. Then we can see that God provided judgment on Satan, which always proceeds from condemnation. That's good insight. 
How amazing it was to read that both Adam and Eve received an equal mental and physical component to this merciful chastisement from God. Okay, let's dive in now. Let's consider the first consequence that Eve had. And that's number one, pain in motherhood. And all the moms in the room said, amen. <laughs> Look at the front half of verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The phrase, I will surely, has the idea of absolutely. It takes us back to Genesis 2.16, when God said, you may surely eat from all the trees. Genesis 2.17, you shall surely die. The word multiply means numerous in number to increase in volume and extent. Observe the word pain is used twice in verse 16. If you look next verse, it's used once in verse 17. It means sorrow, agony, and suffering. So this phrase could be translated, I will cause to be great your sorrow by increasing it and increasing it some more. I wonder if that's why the word labor has come into our language since it is such strenuous work to give birth. In Genesis 1.28, the couple's commanded to be fruitful and multiply by having children. And here, Eve is told that her pain will be multiplied in childbearing. Childbearing refers to the whole process of pregnancy, the actual birth of a baby, and the parenting of her children. Every mother here can testify to the pain of childbirth, something men can't relate to. Guys, from experience, don't ever say any pain you might be experiencing is worse than childbirth. You're welcome. <laughs> By the way, as I go further, I, I recognize that many uh, women and men, husbands and wives, have adopted children, and so bless you for that. Incidentally, the word pain refers to physical discomfort and emotional distress. Didn't take long for Eve to experience emotional distress. In chapter 4, one of her sons murders her other son. Talk about pain. I mean, I know mothers like my sister Mary who continues to be in deep, deep pain and distress due to her son Alex dying. I know moms who are so concerned because of a diagnosis for their child or watching a child go through cancer or watching a child's health fail. Other moms look at their children and they see their son or daughter struggling in school and not being able to learn or going through behavior issues or, or watching their child be depressed. Others, others wonder if their prodigal child 
will ever return to the faith. There are other moms, as an example, Edgewood member Della Brill has a son that she's not heard from. He's gone missing. She's not heard from her son for almost six years. you imagine that agony? I serve as the chaplain for the Quad City Missing Person Network, and this morning uh, we just posted about 15-year-old Michael Jacob Barton, who's been missing from Davenport since March 4th. I think of the pain those parents are experiencing. Friends, the curse of Adam's sin brings suffering to everyone. Would you notice a second consequence for Eve? And that's problems in marriage. The woman's second consequence is stated in the back half of verse 16. It has to do with her relationship with her husband. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Or your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This phrase is a bit difficult to understand because the word desire is used only two other times in the Old Testament. Let's go first to Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, where it's translated with this sense of longing in a romantic sort of way. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Well, the other use is found just one chapter later. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 7, when God says something almost identical to Cain before he ended up killing his brother Abel. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. What a word picture. It's like a lion just ready to pounce on him. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, one principle of interpretation, when you read a verse, you're not quite sure what it means, is to consider the context. So the clear meaning of Genesis 4-7 gives us insight into what Genesis 3-16 means. So in Genesis 4, Cain was rejected by God. He became very angry. The Lord warned him that in his anger, he was easy prey for sin, which was crouching like a lion ready to destroy him. So God urged Cain to fight the inner rage, and instead to rule over it. Now, let's put these verses next to each other to see how similar they are. Genesis 4, 7, and I have the Hebrew word there as well, so you can see it's the identical word. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Genesis three sixteen. Your desire, speaking to Eve, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So since these two verses are almost identical, the preferred understanding is that the marital relationship will naturally lean toward being contrary, where both husband and wife will seek to rule 
over each other. The word rule in Hebrew has overtones of tyranny about it. So in a sinful world, the wife will desire to control, the husband will seek to dominate as coercion replaces cooperation. Let me say it like this. Instead of functioning as one flesh, which is how Genesis 2 ends, their flesh made them fight to see who would win. The New Living Translation reflects this understanding. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. One pastor says it better than I can. When sin has the upper hand in a wife, she will desire to overpower or subdue or exploit her husband. And when sin has the upper hand in a husband, he will try to subdue or rule over her. One commentator adds that phrase to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. The complementary and harmonious relationship God intended for marriage is now filled with friction, with frustration, with conflict, and competition. Kevin DeYoung writes the following in his book, Men and Women in the Church. If the husband is called to be the head of the family, then the wife is called to be its heart. This design is reflected not only in the very good of Eden, but in the very bad as well. The sin in the garden was, among other things, a reversal of the family order. Eve took charge, Adam followed her. Eve sinned not just as a person, but as a woman and a wife. Eve sinned as a man and a husband. Hey, have you noticed marriage can be messy? A couple weeks ago, uh, in our growth group, Beth and I lead a growth group on Wednesday nights, um, one of our growth group members asked for prayer for their marriage. That was quite a moment in our group because his wife was sitting right next to him. And we all looked at her to see if it was okay for him to say our marriage needs some prayer, and she was fine with that. That triggered the whole group to start sharing about how the marriage relationship can get rocky in a hurry. We laughed about our shared struggles, and we lamented how challenging marriage can be. We concluded (laughs) that marriage is a good sanctification tool, (laughs) At the end of this discussion, my wife Beth shared an adaptation of a concept called the marriage box. It goes like this. Most of us have the idea that marriage is like this beautifully wrapped box full of all the things that we have longed for. And upon the wedding day, we get to open the box. We get to look inside and enjoy all of life's best delights. But truthfully, the beautiful box is empty. And both husband and wife must put treasures into the box before anything can be taken out. A couple learns the art and joy of giving in hundreds of ways every day in their marriage. These acts of love fill their box little by little, day after day after day. 
So the marriage box is actually a box of giving to one another. Each couple must choose the joy of filling their box every day of their marriage by living out the one another commands in the Bible. By the way, we believe spiritual growth happens best in groups. I'm so glad I'm in a group. As part of our Everyone Vision for 2023, we're encouraging everyone at Edgewood to get involved in a group. We have all sorts of groups that meet here. We have two groups for women, three for men. One more men's group is beginning uh, this next Saturday morning. We have growth groups that meet during the week, several new ones getting ready to begin. On Sunday mornings, we have 10 different growth groups uh, taking place. And if you're ready to connect that way, fill out a Next Steps card. Uh, A list of Sunday groups is available on the table in the back. The New Testament teaches with Christ at the center of marriage, the husband is to love his wife sacrificially and the wife is to voluntarily follow his loving leadership. We see that clearly in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He gave himself up for her. So submission does not imply spiritual inferiority. God created men and women in his image, which implies equal dignity, mutual respect, holy harmony, complementary roles, and a unified destiny. Men and women are not equal, men and women are equal, but not identical. And so when a husband loves his wife sacrificially, as he loves her and serves her as protector, as guardian, as gardener and leader, That creates an environment where a wife will want to follow his lead. Both husband and wife should seek peace by putting each other first and by mutually serving one another. Ephesians 5 gives us a summary statement. If you want just one verse on how this works, verse 33 of Ephesians 5, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's an action step if you're married. Wives, stop trying to control your husband and willingly follow his lead. Husbands, it's our turn. Make sure you are not recklessly ruling and dominating your wife. Instead, be the loving leader she longs for by sacrificing your life for her as Christ did for the church. Now, before moving on, let me just say clearly that a message like this probably stirs up all sorts of things. Any form of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse is evil and sinful. And so if you're in an abusive relationship, please tell someone and get some help. 
You do not have to suffer in silence. We offer Celebrate Recovery every Friday night, meets in the Life Center at 6 o'clock, and there's a group there that can help. We can also put you in touch with other resources and Christian counseling. And so the curse of Adam's sin brings suffering to everyone. We've looked at what happened to Eve. Now let's turn to the penalties given to Adam. Verse 17 provides the context And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So because Adam listened to Eve and deliberately disobeyed God's clear command, his work world would now be filled with pain. Let's look first at the futility of labor. The first consequence for Adam is stated in verse 18 in the front half of verse 19. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So Genesis 2 verse 9 describes this perfect garden, this paradise, where God caused all kinds of delicious fruit to grow in abundance and with great variety. And all Adam had to do was say, I want that today and take it and eat it. God said, you can eat from all of these trees, all of this fruit, but you can't eat from this one. All he had to do was reach out and pick it. After the fall, well, he had to bend over and work the soil and deal with thorns and thistles and get all sweaty in the hopes that something would grow out of the ground and then he'd pick it and eat the plant of the field. The phrase bring forth means to spring up or sprout. Uh, Think of this passage when you plant your garden this spring and weeds sprout out seemingly out of nowhere. Thorns were undesirable, inedible shrubs. Thistles were weedy, prickly plants. So work had been fulfilling and fruitful before the fall. Remember, God gave Adam work to do before he sinned. He was to tend the garden, care for the garden, but now because of Adam's sin, work would become futile and frustrating. So what was once sweet and pleasurable became sweaty and painful. This is reinforced in many passages. I only have time to take us to two, Psalm 127, two. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. Ecclesiastes 2, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a what? Vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Kent Hughes writes this, note that work itself was not cursed. Work, in fact, had been a gift from God. God's curse was upon the ground. 
Oh, by the way, if you haven't discovered this already, work is not designed to meet your deepest needs. Now, some think, well, if I only had the right job, then I'd be happy. I'd be fulfilled. If I found the exactly right career, then this restlessness would all go away. Listen, work is not designed to meet your deepest needs. Work can be fruitful, but it will also be frustrating and unfulfilling because of the fall, because the curse of Adam's sin brings suffering to everyone. Let's look next at the second consequence for Adam, the finality of life. The second half of verse 19, we read, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Friend, you know, no matter how long you might be able to extend your life, unless the rapture happens first, death and dust is your destiny. Death has hit our church hard in the last several months. The last year, our last calendar year, 28 Edgewood members went to glory. Over the last several years, there's been so much death. How do we process all that? Well, we're urged in Psalm 90, verse 3, you return man to dust, and you say, return, O children of man. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but, think of Genesis 3, toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. It'd be a bummer if we ended there, but look at verse 12. This is a prayer to pray. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What that means is, Lord, help me to live today, not for me, but for you, for your glory, for your honor. Help me to make an impact for you. Give me courage to speak up for you, for the gospel. Help me be involved in those things that are going to last forever. That's what we're called to do. That's how we number our days Death is a direct fulfillment of Genesis 2.17. We read in verse 17 of chapter 2, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam would now toil to have bread, which couldn't even keep him alive. His hunger made him work so he could eat, but that eventually would lead to death. Now allow the force of these words taken right from this passage to impact you. Words like, Cursed, pain, thorns, thistles, sweat, to dust you shall return. So discouragement leads to death, with, which ends in returning to the dust. Adam died spiritually the day he ate the forbidden fruit. And Genesis 5.5 tells us that though he lived for many years... His destiny was still death. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930, comma, and he died. What this means is you and I will literally work ourselves into the ground one way or the other. The serpent lied when he said, you can be like God. That was a lie. Because now their lives are filled with sorrow with sweat, 
with pain, with problems, with disappointment, all to lead in death. And Hebrews 9.27 says, death is the one appointment everyone will keep, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, the curse of Adam's sin brings suffering to everyone. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to share this. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, all the motifs of the curse were drawn together. The tree to which he was nailed, the sweat like drops of blood, the crown of thorns. This week I was moved to read a post by Aaron Wilson called Crowned with the Curse, the gospel significance of thorns, thistles, and sweat. I'm going to read a portion of it, and I'll add a little bit to it. As you think about God's pronouncement of the curse using the imagery of thorns, thistles, and sweat, consider the Scripture's account of Jesus' journey to the cross. Luke 22:44 records a night in which the sweat of Jesus became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Note what Jesus is forced to wear on his way to the cross, a crown of thorns, a byproduct and symbol of the cursed, litter of the curse literally placed on the head of the sacrificial lamb. Matthew 27, 29, they twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Take in the weight of this image. Before Jesus hangs on a cross to absorb the wrath of God, the curse literally hangs on his head as thorns and drips from his body as blood-soaked sweat. Meanwhile, the people around Christ see this as literal slapstick comedy, beating him with rods and mockery. As the mangled crown of thorns was pushed onto Jesus' skull, I wonder if he reflected on the day he first heard the curse pronouncement given to Adam. As Jesus stood silent before his mockers, the embedded points of each thorn would have been sharp reminders of his mission. They would also have foreshadowed his victory over Satan and Jesus' glorious future. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Thankfully, we now live on the other side of the cross where Jesus still wears a crown, but one that is no longer a symbol of the curse. Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering, having tasted death for everyone who puts their trust in him. And so the next time you wrestle with a news headline, you wrestle with the result of the curse, whether that's a natural disaster, an untimely death, an unexpected diagnosis, remember, Jesus bore the weight of sin to ultimately redeem humanity from such suffering. And let's tie it into the message. The next time 
you experience pain in motherhood or problems in your marriage or you experience the futility of labor or the finality of life, remember Galatians 3.13. Jesus reversed the curse by becoming a curse when he paid the price for all of our sins. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone, everyone who's hanged on a tree. So if you're a born-again Christian, thank God you've been transformed from his enemy into a beloved child. Jesus once wore your curse, and now you wear his robe of righteousness. And because of this, a resurrected world, one without thorns, awaits If you're not a follower of Christ yet, you are still under the curse of sin. And you will have to pay the consequences for eternity in a horrible place called hell. (laughs) But you don't have to go there. You don't have to. God's calling you today to repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your curse bearer. I was pondering some words from a popular Christmas carol, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow Far as the what? Curse is found. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. I invite you to close your eyes, and if you're not yet a follower of Christ, today can be your day of salvation. I'm going to lead in a prayer, and you could pray along with me quietly. God, I, uh, I admit that I've been seeking satisfaction, meaning, purpose in different activities in relationships, thinking another person can help me be happy, Um, perhaps in my job or my search for that perfect job. It could be through activities. It could be through substances um, that help numb me or make me feel good. But, Lord, whatever I call it, I want to just call it what you call it, God, I'm a sinner, and I'm making a mess of my life. So I turn from my self-centered sinfulness, and I turn to you, Jesus, understanding that you died in my place as my sacrifice, as my substitute. When you hung on that tree, that rough cross, you did it for me. And thank you that when your blood was spilled, 
that God the Father accepted that blood as full and final payment for all of my sins. And thank you, Jesus, that you rose again on the third day, defeating death, conquering my depravity, and having victory over the devil. So save me from my sins, forgive me for my sins, and Lord, now it's my desire to live under your lordship for the rest of my life. Help me to live for you, for your purposes here in where you place me on my campus or in my workplace, my family, my neighborhood, out in the community, all for your glory and your honor. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.